An additional means of God's grace um, is his word to his people. If you'll open your Bible to Matthew chapter 4, we're there again uh, this Lord's Day morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 4. Beginning at verse 23, uh, those verses uh, before us beginning there and concluding at verse 25, Matthew 4. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This morning I'm using as a subject for these verses a summary of Messiah's ministry. The troubles in our world and the ones in our own lives began in an idyllic place, Eden. It was there that the first man, the progenitor and divinely appointed representative of the human race, Adam, along with his wife Eve, sinned. Adam's disobedience was what theologians called the fall. The first disobedience is when men fell into sin. As a consequence of that act of rebellion, Adam's progeny was plunged into spiritual ruin. Because of that catastrophic moment in human history, sin entered the world and death through sin. Sin, sickness, demonic involvement, and death have dominated the landscape of human existence ever since. Sin, therefore, is the root cause of man's difficulties. Underscore that, underline that. Sin is the problem. It is at the root of everything that's wrong in our world. Sickness and disease and death are symptomatics, symptomatic of our spiritual ruin. Even today, I've mentioned it earlier, and we're all aware of it. We're all conscious of this global pandemic. We're all experiencing it to one degree or another. Um, This is a result of the fall, COVID-19 and its variants. In a world that hadn't fallen into sin, there would be none of these kind of things. But because we live in a sin-cursed world, these are the issues that we have to face. Since man's condition is tied directly to his revolt against his creator, only God can remedy it. There are no human solutions. Nothing that man can do can fix his spiritual situation. Only God can do it. And that remedy is demonstrated in the ministry of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text is a summary of his ministry. The Gospel of Matthew, as it unfolds, provides a fuller record of all that Jesus did, all that he said. But even his record and the record of the other Gospel accounts during his ministry. John, the Apostle John, lets us know this. He concludes his book in the 20th chapter and the 31st verse. I'll just paraphrase. He says, if all that Jesus did, if they were written in detail, he supposed that the world could not contain the books. 
our Lord's ministry was voluminous, voluminous. Matthew, in his summarization of these verses, in these verses, has two foci. By those two foci, we will divide our text into two heads. The first one is this, the ministry of the word. In verse 23, it tells us that Jesus was going throughout Galilee. Let's talk about that for a moment. To deepen our understanding of the meaning and breadth of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, we need to turn to the Jewish historian and military commander, Josephus. He says Galilee had 204 cities and villages, each with no fewer than 15,000 inhabitants. He estimates a population of 3 million people. His estimation could have been wrong, but in, in any event, there are a lot of people in Galilee to whom Jesus ministered. Commentator D.A. Carson adds, quote, At the rate of two towns or villages per day, three months would be required to visit them all with no time off for the Sabbath. Jesus, as the text tells us, did not take any time off for the Sabbath. He was teaching in their synagogues, just what the text says there in verse 23, the A portion. Teaching, that word there in our text, is from the original languages didasco, and it refers to passing on of information. Teaching is also a synonym for doctrine. Some translations render it as such, doctrine. Sometimes people are afraid of that word doctrine. They say, I don't want to hear doctrine. But let me tell you what doctrine is. Doctrine and teaching are, is nothing other than the explanation of God's truth about God. God's universe and God's creation. That's what doctrine is. In this gospel of Matthew, Jesus taught the truth about a, a number of truths. <laughs> He listed them. We can list them. In, in the um, Gospel of Matthew, things that Jesus taught, the doctrine that he taught, the, the issues uh, that he addressed, just in this Gospel alone, evangelism, bibliology, the doctrine of Scripture, sanctification, prayer, pneumatology, that is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of heaven, he addressed anthropology, the doctrine of man, Christology, the doctrine of Christ, church discipline, forgiveness, marriage and divorce, creation, soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation, rewards, the sovereignty of God, the sacrificial death of Christ, immortality of the soul, Messiah's lineage. He exposed false teachers. He taught eschatology, the doctrine of last things, and ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, though in embryo. Jesus taught all those things in the book of Matthew. He taught doctrine. And all of these things, one way or another, intersect with human life. All of them are important for human understanding of life about God and about mankind and about sin and about death and about heaven, about eternal life. All of it. And that's what Jesus taught. He's teaching in their synagogues. As well, our text says that during his time in Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. A synagogue, you need to know that the Jews had a policy called freedom of the synagogue that permitted any qualified man of the congregation to deliver the exposition of the Old Testament passage. You'll recall, 
You know the Bible, those of you who read it and understand, recall events in Christ's life, that an example of that was in the synagogue in his hometown, his original hometown of Nazareth. It's recorded in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. He stood up to read after the attendant gave him the, the scroll of the place. And it was Isaiah, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he read it and he applied it to himself. In fact, he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Not only did he do that, let me tell you something else about Jesus and his teaching. He taught the word of God with authority. Everyone who heard him noted the qualitative superiority of his instruction. No one ever taught like him. God incarnate taught with authority. In Mark chapter 1, verse 21 in verse and verse 22 we see an example of this they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach they were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes he didn't teach like the scribes their authority was what another scribe said or another rabbi said. Jesus, by the way, never quoted any extra biblical sources. He never did that. He only quoted scripture. He taught with authority. His auditors were amazed. In verse 27 of Mark, it says that they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. The auditors of our Lord couldn't help but say that. What's authority? It speaks of rule and power. Jesus' teaching was with absolute dominion and clarity. What he said was authoritative. It's binding. It's binding on the consciences of men. It's absolute truth. It was expressed repeatedly in the formulation. You've read it, and we'll get to it as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus repeatedly said, but I say to you. But I say to you. You've heard this, but I say to you. <laughs> I love the formulation. Hear what you've heard from the rabbis, what you've heard from the Pharisees, what you've heard, but I say to you. It's divine authority. And when he spoke, you do understand that his teaching came from God the Father. He only spoke his commandments. This is divine authority. He is to be listened to. Then the next thing we see, the ministry of the word for our Lord Jesus Christ uh, here in Matthew chapter 4, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Claiming the gospel of the kingdom. That word, proclaiming, caruso, is the word in the original language. It means to herald. It means to cry out. That's what the word tells us. In fact, in verse 17 of Matthew 4, it's translated preach. So this proclaiming, this preaching, this heralding, this to cry out, is to make an official announcement. 
One lexicon says the word is most often in reference to God's saving action. So the proclamation of God's saving action. That saving action is announced in the gospel. Gospel means good news. The good news is that God has acted to remedy man's plight. As I said in the opening here in my introduction, he is the only one who can remedy our situation. He is the only one who has the answer for our dilemma spiritually. Mark chapter 1 verse 14 states that Jesus was preaching the gospel of God. The gospel from God is what that means when it says the gospel of God. In fact, in Romans 1, 1, Paul states it, the gospel of God. That's what the, it means in the genitive in the Greek text. It's from God. The gospel originates with God. That's where the good news comes from. God. You want some good news from God? He says, here it is, the gospel. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians, said in that letter, in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, this. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. End of quote. That word revelation there in that text means an unveiling. Jesus Christ unveiled it to the Apostle Paul. He received the truth of the gospel directly from the risen Christ. The gospel then is not a man-made doctrine. The gospel is not something some church leaders concocted. The gospel is not something that is devised from mere mortals. It comes from the living God Him. Self. Now you notice here in our text, verse 23, it says, of the kingdom. The kingdom. And it's the kingdom, what? The kingdom of heaven. So that's what verse 17 tells us in Matthew 4, the kingdom of heaven. Now let me let you know there are three aspects of this kingdom, to the kingdom. There is the kingdom of God, the heaven, that rules over everything. Always has. God's throne has been established from eternity, and he rules over all, every single creature in creation. Animate and inanimate, he rules. There is coming a millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is when Christ will be here on this planet and he will therefore rule from Jerusalem and all of the world for a thousand years will be subject to his authority, his rule. And righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. There's another kingdom, aspect of the kingdom, and that is the eternal kingdom. That is in the eternal state. That is when all this that we're experiencing, this earth and this uh, universe will be gone, passed away, and the eternal state will be there in that eternal kingdom where all the saints will be always with the Lord. 
But the kingdom is talked about here. To get to the millennial kingdom, get to the eternal kingdom, you have to be in this aspect of the kingdom. Now this kingdom is a kingdom that's spiritual, therefore it cannot be found by Google Maps. It's an invisible kingdom. You can't go out and look, oh, there's kingdom. No, you can't see it like that. And this kingdom is only entered by the new birth. The Holy Spirit imparts in regeneration, that's what it is, a new birth, the impartation of new life to dead, spiritually dead sinners. And at that precise moment, that the sinner who's dead was, until the impartation of divine life, the sinner then believes on Christ unto salvation. That moment he's in the kingdom. And she is in the kingdom. All Christians are in the kingdom. According to Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, we are in the kingdom. There are verses that talk about inheriting the kingdom. In uh, 1 Corinthians, for example, and in Ephesians, another example. Inheriting the kingdom, meaning the fullness that God has in store for his people. That'll be in the eternal kingdom. And only people who enter the spiritual kingdom now through the new birth will be in that kingdom to experience the fullness of the inheritance that awaits the saints in light. In this kingdom, Christ and God reign. Reign over the hearts of those who are in it. And you have, that's why we bow to him. That's why we yield to him because he is our sovereign, our, our, our monarch, our ruler. Prior to being in the kingdom, we were on our own throne, right? We were calling the shots, as it were. We were our little kings in our little kingdom doing our little kingly thing to be what we wanted to be until Christ came. Now we've been dethroned, thankfully, and he is on the throne. He rules. And he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom. So what we see here, and this focus is the ministry of the word. The next focus is the ministry of healing. We see it here. Now in verse 23, the B portion. It's a generic statement. It talks about every kind of sickness or disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Now in verse 24, Matthew specifies. But here we see our Lord, in verse 23b, healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And that's important. We can deduce from this statement that the kind of disease and sickness was irrelevant to Jesus. What I mean by that is, it didn't matter what it was. There were no limits to his healing power. No one could bring to Jesus a case that was too hard. Like some contemporary faith healers. Uh, you in a wheelchair? Put them in the back of the line. I challenge all these fake faith healers. Um, go to these hospitals where these people have who are intubated and they're dying from COVID and walk in there and heal them. Why don't you do that? I've never seen or heard where any of those imposters have done that. You know why? Because they know they can't do it. 
phonies. So they are. You really have the power to heal. We'll go walk into ICU and just say, get up in the name of Jesus. And people will be instantly healed and they'll walk out. They don't do that because they can't. Moreover, I'm going to tell you something you probably hadn't thought about. Jesus never organized a healing service where it controlled the environment and controlled who came. He never organized that. They just followed him around. <laughs> and he just healed them at will. Sometimes touched them, sometimes spoke to them, sometimes didn't even say a word. And sometimes the person was healed by Jairus' daughter who wasn't present. Jesus healed them all. And his healing ministry was miraculous ministry. In fact, as miracles of healing were a subcategory of the supernatural, and let me explain what I mean by that. Creation and the flood, those two, for example, supernatural events that didn't involve human agency. There's nobody around human when God spoke, let there be light. <laughs> the flood, God did that alone without human agency. Supernatural acts of God. Miracles are supernatural occurrences with involvement of human agents. They are events that are extraordinary and cannot be explained by natural forces. There are supernatural acts of God by which he uses human beings to effect the miracle. He works through them. Another thing, let me tell you, they are not merely strange happenings, coincidences, sensational events, or natural anomalies. I remember as a kid, as a teenager, um, we were in California, and I was with my father and his brother, Uncle Albert. We were, I don't remember where we were going, and at the time, there was this, this talk about uh, this, this home that had a cross on a light across. And man, I was, I wanted to go see that. My father, my uncle, and he blew off like, that's nothing. But to satisfy me, they went there. I got to see it. And I thought about that. It was nothing. I don't know what the explanation of it was, but it was it. It was not a miracle. It was just some strange happening, some coincidence, but it wasn't a supernatural event. Another thing about the miraculous, it does not happen every day. They are not routine events. If they were, they would not be miracles, right? <laughs> it just be something happens in routine. Miracles are a suspension of divine, uh, of natural law. God works. Don't, don't be looking for a miracle every day. God is not doing that. When you wake up in the morning, that's not a miracle. That's a natural happening. <laughs> it's no more miraculous for you to wake up than some sinner to wake up. Miracles happened in three relatively brief periods in biblical history, and this is important to understand. 
The first one was the time of Moses and Joshua. You can read the accounts. You see the miracle. Think about it. I just read earlier uh, the parting of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel walked over on dry ground. God, through Moses raising his staff, uh, emblematic of the power of God, and God did that through the human agency of Moses, and so they did. And then the Red Sea closed back up over and drowned the enemies. Joshua, you recall, they were fighting the, um, for the conquest of the promised land, and God prayed to ask if the sun would stand still. Still. People wonder, oh, how can that be? I'm going to tell you how it can be. God can stop the sun right where he wants it to stop, keep the light shining, and keep us on the planet. The creator can do whatever he wants with his creation. He's God. I don't find it to be a, a hard thing to grasp, but it's miraculous. God listened to Joshua, and the sun stood still. Another period of uh, miracles, the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Third one, Christ and the apostles of Christ. And that era was unique among the eras of miracles. As these tremendous uh, miracles occurred of healing. There's a fourth period coming as the uh, the the miraculous events that will unfold in the book of Revelation. There are going to be two witnesses, for example, who will be on earth and for 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months. <laughs> they're going to exercise them. They're going to stop the rain, bring fire. Anybody comes trying to harm them, they're going to breathe out fire. Miracles. Or point of miracles. Miracles authenticated the miracle worker as God's messenger served to validate the messenger's miracle. Peter. Peter was uh, telling his fellow Jews that reality about our Lord Jesus Christ. It validated who he was. God worked through him. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, I think it is. Yes. He says this to them in his sermon. First Sermon of the Church, Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Jesus Christ was validated before them as Messiah in this message by God. Miracles, wonders, and signs. They had no basis for refusing him. His message was authenticated. In fact, uh, in the apostles, they did signs and wonders that authenticated them. In the 12, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. There's another component, a secondary component, um, for miracles of our Lord. They were to demonstrate the compassion of God toward hurting people. Matthew chapter 20, verse 24. There the text says, Jesus was moved with compassion and gave sight to two blind men. Moved with compassion. 
God is compassionate. Christ is compassionate. Now, does God heal supernaturally today? Let me tell you, number one, he certainly can. I don't believe scripture teaches he can't. God rules this world. He can do whatever he chooses to do. If he wants to heal somebody supernaturally, that is directly delivered him from whatever, yes. And I believe he does do that on occasion for his own purposes. Now let's look at some, uh, back in, in Matthew 4, some cases of healing, specific he- healing here. Matthew chapter 24. Now you think about it. 23, the bottom of the verse, people have uh, been healed. Everybody's being healed. And do you not think the word's going to get spread around? Yes. Verse 24, it says that throughout all Syria, the northern region of Israel, like wildfire, the, there's a healer. He can heal anything. Go to him. And they brought to him all who were ill. Those suffering with various diseases and pains. Those two diseases and pain appeared because the pains people suffered from diseases. When Jesus healed them of the disease, the pain left. It's a wonderful reality. He healed the source. The symptoms disappeared. Demoniacs here in the text this is the spiritual realm this demonstrates his uh, his power his authority over that realm demoniacs translates a Greek term that means to be possessed by demons or a demon demons are nothing other than fallen angels Matthew 25 41 they followed Lucifer or Satan in his revolt against their creator, the triune God. These unholy spirit beings know who Jesus is and they fear him. They know um, he has absolute authority and power over them. And they know that he is going to dismiss them to the lake of fire to be eternally punished. That's why they shudder. They know what awaits them. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, demonstrated his power. It says in 1 John, he came to destroy the works of the devil, and that he did. Jesus routinely exercises power and authority over them during his earthly ministry. What that did, that showed uh, the presence of the kingdom and the king. Jesus, absolute authority over these beings who mean human beings no good Matthew chapter 12 verse 28 demonstration of his authority in the presence of the kingdom it says this Jesus has been falsely accused of doing a work by Beelzebub the chief of the demons this is blasphemy Jesus with infallible perfect logic says but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you in the previous verse um, 
their sons were cast out. He said, I'll let them be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. By the way, the if is not a term for doubt. It's reality from the original tongue. The kingdom is present. He cast them out at will. Now, with respect to Christians, the New Testament epistles never warns them about demon possession. Aren't you glad to know that? Never. You would think if we were subject to demon possession somewhere in the New Testament epistles, Paul or Peter or John would have said something about it. Said, brothers, I know you've been delivered from your sin, but you got to watch out. The devil wants to get in you. Some demon wants to inhabit you. No. No case of that. Yes, we have to stand against them because we know what the scripture teaches for believers in the New Testament or what to do. James tells us in one place, James 4, 7, Paul extensively writes in Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 18, but we don't ever hear a word about protecting ourselves from being inhabited by a demon. I'll tell you why. Holy Spirit lives in us. Do you think he's going to let a demon cohabit with him? I don't think so. Possession signifies ownership. He owns us. God does. He's not sharing his property with the devil. So no, you never have to worry about demon possession. Now, demons will harass us. They attempt us. All the rest that they do but they can never indwell us. Now, this little list of specific things that will be expanded upon by Matthew later as he writes his book, he goes back to another disease, epileptics. Epilepsy. That's what this believe it is. Actually, there were people who thought this affliction was um, caused by the moon. They were called lunatics. In Matthew seventeen fifteen, I think uh, the text even uses that word lunatics. He thought the moon somehow influenced uh, the person who had this physical malady, and they were called being moonstruck. But really, it's epilepsy, a disorder of the central nervous system. That's what it was. Jesus healed those kind of people. Paralytics. A wide range of uh, crippling handicaps. You see, this is what I want to see these faith healers do. Go get a quadriplegic person and heal them. Walk out, stand up, walk out of that chair. That's what we want to see, right? Hmm. Jesus healed them all, all comers. Let me tell you something about how Jesus healed. Jesus' healing (laughs) wasn't uh, the kind where he had to go get rehabilitation. Matthew 8, I think it is. Verse 14, 
of Matthew 8 says, when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. She was bedridden. She was so sick, she couldn't do anything. And, and let me tell you something about that. People in that day, um, they couldn't do like us. I mean, life was such, you had to do whatever you had to do, even though you were sick. But she was so sick, all she could do was be in bed with a fever. Verse 15, Jesus touched her. The fever left her. And notice, and she got up and waited on him. She didn't have to say, well, give me seven days. I got to recover because, you know, I've had a fever. No, it's, it's if she had not been sick at all. It's kind of healing that Jesus performed. Healings demonstrated that the message of Christ was from God, the message of salvation. And that is the greater need, by the way. For all those whom Jesus healed, they eventually died. Think about that. Although he banished sickness in Israel while he was ministering, all those people died. The healings were compassionate, but they were temporary. They pointed to Jesus as Messiah. The kingdom of heaven was present. And that conversion to Christ, coming to him by faith, was more important even than a healing. The healing pointed to the need for him, his power to save, but you needed something more than physical healing. Martin Lloyd-Jones realized this. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a a preacher, but before that he was a physician. He was a brilliant physician, even uh, to the royal house in England. God called him to, to the pastorate prior to that. It, he realized that, or he said when he was a practicing physician, we spend most of our time rendering people fit to go back to their sin. Of his patients, he realized a man with a healthy body and a diseased soul is all right for 60 years or so, and then he has to face an eternity of hell. End of quote. That's the reality. Why people need salvation. The large crowds came. They followed him from Galilee, verse 25, in the capitalist, the ten cities, Jerusalem, Judea, far beyond Jordan. Everywhere they came, what they needed more than anything was the salvation that the Savior provides. Because no matter what the temporal blessing is, we're all going to die. Let me say a few things about sickness. All sickness may not be tied to personal sin. John 9. You see, um, we live in a fallen world. And living in a fallen world, you can get sick, and it's not that you committed some sin that's worthy of that sickness. We live in a sin-cursed world. Understand that. Death. Christians die. But death for Christians is not a punishment for us because we're living in a, here it is again, a fallen world and we're subject to aging and death. I really, uh, I, I, people try to fight aging. Fight all you want, you're going to lose. 
Because you live in a fallen world. It's a principle of death in us that God decreed in Genesis 3 because of man's sin and there's nothing that can stop it. It's like a runaway train without an engineer to just going down track. You can't stop that thing. It's headed for a wreck. We're aging and we're going to die. Now, how do you deal with that? Knowing that you're aging, you're going to die. Believers should view the final experiences of illness and death as one of the events that works together for their good by God. We don't think like that, do we? It says God works together for good. Then they love him, all those things. Does he not? Could that not include sickness and death? Yes. For us, death is no punishment. Death is instantaneous transport into the presence of Jesus Christ. We live in a world that's fallen. We live in a world where the last enemy, death, 1 Corinthians 15, has not been done away with permanently. I would say to anybody who's not a Christian, do understand this, even for the Christians. Christ's death on the cross dealt with sin itself, not simply its effects. He removed the source of human misery and alienation from God by his death on the cross. He paid for sin. But one cannot benefit from Christ's work on the cross, his death and his resurrection from the dead, unless one trusts him as Lord and Savior. You know, there were people who were healed by Jesus who did not submit to him as Lord. Uh, they walked away with a healed body, but uh, still a sin sick soul. Don't let that happen to you. You're going to die. The question is, how will you die and go into eternity? Saved or unsaved? With Christ or without Him? He will either be your Savior or your judge. Which will it be for you? If you're a child of God, your destiny is certain. It'll be with Him. If you're not a child of God, if you die that way, your destiny is certain too. It'll be eternal separation from Him. Come to Him. Don't let that happen to you. Come to Him today. For the child of God, thank Him for what He has accomplished for you and your eternal joy. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank You for the reality of Jesus Christ and his work what he achieved for us in his mission the word of God and healings come we thank you that our souls are healed those of us who are saved for any who is not saved we pray you save them help us to take these truths and apply them to our heart and deepen our grasp that we may rejoice in what you have accomplished on our behalf through your son the Lord Jesus Christ it is in his name I pray Amen